0: The gastrointestinal tract, every organ will have a lot of details. But the first part of the lecture, we spoke about the common features of the tract, so that each layer would have things that are typical, and those typical things are present in every single layer of the GI tract. So if you learn what is typical of mucosa, submucosa, muscularis, and serosa and, um, adventitia, then it's easy for you to, when you look at the different organs, just say, okay, you know what, this is normal, what is special? And you learn the special thing. So when I was doing it as a medical student, what I did is I created a table. After I learned the normal, I created a table so that I have mucosa, submucosa, muscularis, and serosa adventitia, and then I have the different organs on this side, on the y-axis. And because I knew what the normal is for everything, Every organ, I put the particularities of every different layer. So like, for example, the esophagus, the mucosa would be a stratified squamous epithelium for frictional support. A, feature, a special feature would be the submucosa has glands, whereas other organs don't have glands. It makes it easy for you to get a snapshot in your head when you're studying. The clinical tutors will do this with you in the lab, so if you want to preempt that, just try to make it for yourself. So let's continue with our gastrointestinal tract. We stopped at the stomach. We spoke about the fundic, cardiac, and pyloric stomach. The pyloric stomach we said had short, short glands and long pits. Lots of mucus secretion being done there. Not much, um, not much other secretion. And you'll find that in the stomach, most of the parietal and chief cells are located in the fundic stomach. The cardiac and pyloric region, not much digestion takes place there. So you don't find, if any, you don't find any population of parietal or chief cells. And if you do, it will be an isolated one or two. Most of the pits and glands in the stomach, in the fundic and card, in the pyloric and cardiac stomach will be populated by your mucous neck cells, and your surface mucus cells. So after your pyloric canal, you you, you begin the the duodenum, and there is a change in the mucosa from gastric mucosa to duodenal mucosa. From anatomy, you know that the duodenum's function is mainly for terminal digestion as well as absorption. So you go from an epithelium that is secretory to one that is more or less absorptive. That happens, that change happens at the gastroesophageal junction. And just like the esophagogastric junction, we're gonna go through the changes in the different layers. The mucosa change. So here in the stomach, you'll have your gastric pits and glands. In the duodenum, you become more you become absorptive, so you have finger like projections sticking out. We call them villi. You do have glands, but in the case of the duodenum, we call them intestinal glands. That's your mucosa. Your submucosa had no glands in the stomach. In the duodenum, we have the second site where there are glands in the submucosa. The first site will be the esophagus, your submucosa glands scattered throughout the entire esophagus. And here in the duodenum, you have duodenal submucosa glands. We call them Brunner's glands, and they're very characteristic of the duodenum they appear at the gastroduodenal junction and the muscularis layer which was three layers in the saw so in the stomach becomes two layers the typical appearance of muscularis externa in the duodenum before the muscularis externa does its change the inner circular layer forms a thickening of a thickening and that thickening is called a sphincter the pyloric sphincter the pyloric sphincter is a very characteristic sphincter, especially in your imaging studies. It's a very distinct feature for your, um, your barium swallow. So that's your pyloric sphincter here. It's a thickening of smooth muscles from the inner circular layer. So we call this thickening an anatomical sphincter, as opposed to other sphincters that may be just increased in the tone, but there's no discrete thickening, and these are called physiological sphincters. So this is your junction right here. Notice the transition in the epithelium. These are villi, and these are your gastric pits and your gastric glands. So let's start off with a question to preview what you will be doing. It's okay to get this one wrong. Just click one. It's okay. We'll look for the answers as you go along in the lecture. Okay. So keep that question in mind, and as you go along, fish for the answer, and we'll, we'll see if you get a, different, get a different answer later on. So before we actually leave the stomach and move into the, the, the duodenum, we have to talk about what could possibly go wrong. We spoke about our Barrett's esophagus already, you now with the stomach, one of the more common conditions you're going to find, especially among professionals, I mean, I'm sure there are, there's at least one person here with ulcers, peptic ulcers. So these peptic ulcers are ulcers that are, are um, defects in the mucosa or in the lining of either the stomach or the duodenum. In other words, the locations where you actually have peptic tissue present. Peptic tissue is stomach tissue. In other words, that's secretory, that secretory epithelium there. So peptic ulcers can be present in the stomach as well as the first part of the duodenum, which, can, which is right next to the pyloric sphincter. Um, the most common cause now is actually a bacteria, a pesky ball called Helicobacter pylori. We have a nice picture of it right here. They're very tiny and they're mobile, spirochets, mobile, kind of like Leptospira, and, and, um, and, syphili- and cholera bacteria very mobile. And these bacteria are able to do two things that are the causes of peptic ulcer. Peptic ulcers occur because, one, the mucus barrier is not sufficiently protective, and somebody was talking about that, right? Or, two, the environment there, the acidic environment, is too much, right? So in the case of Helicobacter pylori, which we're going to talk about now, the bacteria is able to produce enzymes that break down the mucus, the thick mu- protective mucus, or it can secrete ureases that produces an alkaline environment and that stimulates the gastrin of the stomach, it stimulates more gastric acid production. So it's a vicious cycle, right? Now this bacteria likes an alkaline environment, so that love of, alpha, of um, ammonia increases acid production. So dual fold, right? The net effect of the loss of protection and the increased acidity are focal sites of inflammation, and if that inflammation persists and is not dealt with immediately, that inflammation could lead to necrosis occurring and a defect occurs in the wall where the where the Helicobacter pylori is. Now, this defect, that inflama- that inflamed area also has no protection over it, so it is also exposed now to the acids and enzymes in the stomach, which further worsens the defect, further worsens the sore. So the net result will be a sore or a defect or an ulcer at points of the gastrointestinal tract where you have gastric acids being secreted. The more common sites will be the fundus of the stomach. That's a very common site the lower part of the body of the stomach, as well as the first part of the duodenum, the duodenal cap, that is exposed to high amounts of gastric acids. So these are classic peptic ulcers, one here at the body. Here you have some at the antral region going down towards the pylorus, and the duodenal one is not shown here. Now the body is going to try to heal these ulcers firstly by producing anti-inflammatory agents, then later by forming scar tissue. And if the ulcer is not dealt with, if the helicobacter pylori is not dealt with and you don't take that triple treatment of antibiotics, protein pump inhibitors, and so on, you're going to have the defect worsening and possibly going through the entire wall of the stomach and along the way producing the complications of peptic ulcers. So the chronic recurrence of peptic ulcers leads to chronic peptic ulcers and the complications would be as follows. Initially, when you go down into the submucosa, large amounts of blood vessels there, right? So large amounts of blood vessels that are there predisposes to bleeding. So peptic ulcers bleed. And we know that. One of the symptoms would be vomiting of blood or passing of dark stools. Secondly, you could penetrate past the submucosa into your muscularis layer and eventually through the serosa. When you penetrate into the serosa, that's called perforation, a perforated ulcer, extremely painful, and eventually, because the ulcer is perforated into the peritoneum, you have a leakage of gastric juices into the peritoneum, producing a chemical peritonitis, extremely painful, and a medical emergency. So the complications are due to the recurrent um, um, activation of the peptic ulcer, which leads to penetration of the ulcer deeper and deeper through the wall, producing bleeding initially, then eventually perforation, and then peritonitis. Comfortable here? So here we have a large blood vessel at the base of the ulcer. It's about to be eroded. Eventually, after chronic irritation and ulceration, we have a perforated ulcer here. So this is outside peritoneal cavity and inside stomach cavity. So we threw the stomach. We know the cells there. We know the different parts. We love fundic stomach because it has everything, and we know about ulcers. Let's talk about the small intestine. You did it with um. You should have done it in anatomy already, but for review purposes, the function of the small intestine will be for terminal um, digestion as well as absorption of most of the nutrients. Only a small amount happens in the small intestine. The small intestine, specifically the duodenum, receives acidic chime from the stomach. It receives enzymes and so on from the pancreas and bile from the liver, the biliary tree. The regions are the duodenum, jejunum, and ileum, and each region has its particularities. And because the major function here will be for absorption of nutrients, you have specializations along the wall of the large intestine to facilitate that process. Cellular specializations, microvilli, which we love now because we know them from last term, right? And we have two new ones, which are tissue specializations. Plicae circularis, or semilunar folds, as they would have been called in anatomy, or valves of Corkring, maybe anatomy called them. And you have villi, those nice finger-like mucosal projections. So here we have our microvilli mucosa fall to form villi, and your plicae circularis. It looks very much like the rugae that we saw in the stomach. However, these are permanent. They do not decrease in size when the, the wood is empty. So generally now we're going to look at the different layers and speak about the particularities of the different layers, and then we're going to look at the features of each of the different parts of the small intestine, the main features. So the mucosa will be a simple columnar epithelium for the function of absorption and secretion. Lamina propria, just the same. Lots of gut-associated lymphoid tissue, but in the small intestine, they're very well developed, especially in the terminal ileum. You'll also have some deep intestinal glands. You had gastric glands before, now we have intestinal glands. Histologists call them crypts of Lieberkuhn or intestinal crypts, and they're going to secrete a lot of mucus. The submucosa is the same as everywhere else in the gastrointestinal tract, except one part will have submucosal glands, very much like the esophagus. Normally the submucosa doesn't have glands, but in the small intestine, the duodenum has glands, and the esophagus has glands further up. The muscularis external is back to two layers, and you have your myosin, your Orbach's plexus in between. That doesn't change. And then you have your serosa or adventitia based on the part of the GI tract you're looking at. So duodenum will have serosa and adventitia, but jejunum and ileum will have only serosa. So we said that there are tissue specializations. Let's look at the plicae circularis first, or the valves of Cochrane. These are the semilunar valves that stick into the lumen, and they are are permanent um, folds, that are formed from the submucosa, pushing the mucosa upwards into the lumen. Now they're very, very well developed in the middle parts of the small intestine, and they're the ones responsible for that characteristic linear pattern in your barium swallow that you saw in anatomy for the small intestine. That nice linear pattern is due to the pigment getting caught up between those semilunar folds. Okay. So you have them. They're small in the duodenum. They get very large in the jejunum, and then they flatten out in the ileum. Villi also increase the surface area for absorption. Villi are folds of the mucosa. So plicae are folds of the submucosa, and villi are folds of the mucosa. The cool thing about villi is that they're also permanent folds, right? And at the core of the villi, you have a blind Ended lymphatic channel that's highly fenestrated. And the function of that lymphatic channel is to absorb fats and so on directly from the lumen that pass through the enterocytes. So it's your first site for fat absorption. They're called lacteals, and there's a single one per villus. So that's your epithelium right here, lamina propria, with all the loose lymphatic tissue and so on, and that's your lacteal. And of course microvilli which you are very friendly with microvilli are cellular specializations there's a core of actin filaments and in the small intestine the microvilli surface is covered by a slimy mucosal mucosy glycocalyx substance so the entire covering of the microvilli is covered by glycocalyx and the glycocalyx now is going to is going to cover enzymes that you find along the surface membrane of the microvilli. These enzymes would be your enterokinases, your, all the terminal enzymes, your lactase, your um, lipases, and so on. Those are found along the surface of the microvilli, and they're covered by glycocalyx. And that arrangement gives, and plus the actin core and the large quantity of microvilli, gives the cells a brush border appearance that you may have also spoken about last term. So that brush border or striated border is due to all those things, lots of microvilli, the glycocalyx. So with a, with, in a periodic acid shift um, stain, the surface of these endothelial um, ent- intestinal cells Will stain highly purple. So we have villi, microvilli. Now let's go to the glands. The glands are called intestinal glands, and like in the stomach, they're found within the lamina propria. They're basically invaginations of the epithelium into the lamina propria, right? We call them crypts of Lieberkuhn, and they tend to be simple tubular glands. They don't branch much. Um, they are continuous with the epithelium that you have in the villi. So villi goes out like this. Groups of liver couldn't go down like that. All right? And you find different cell types here. I like these in the bottom. They're nice and red, and they're very granular. We call them panet cells. So let's look at the cell types that we find in the intestine. The most numerous ones will be your enterocytes. Enterocytes. These are your primary absorptive cells. And they also do a bit of secretion. They have digestive enzymes on the microvilli surfaces. And they secrete a little bit of water and some electrolytes. So they're the ones responsible for your diarrhea. When they get irritated, they secrete a lot of electrolytes and water. And you have your gastro. We spoke about the micro- microvilli already. Um, because they're exposed to a lumen, they'll have tight junctions connecting them together. And they have lateral placations. Between them, you have interspace goblet cells that secrete mucus. Now, both the enterocytes and the goblet cells are renewed continually every week, which is good because it means if you have an infection, by the next week, most likely, you'd have gotten rid of the infected enterocytes and replaced them with brand new ones. The goblet cells would have mucus granules in the apical surface as every other goblet cell we would have seen, like in respiratory. The ones I like are the panet cells. These are found at the base of the intestinal gland, very close to the muscularis mucosae. So these are your intestinal glands here. That's your submucosa. And this is your muscularis mucosae. And right at the base, you have these glands here with the reddish granules. Panet cells are your antibactericidal producing cells. They produce um, lysozyme, that is an antibacterial agent. And they produce, excuse me, alpha defensins, which is also antimicrobial. They're characterized by reddish granules on the apical surface. Remember their location and the reddish granules. So they're for throughout the entire small intestine, but not in the large intestine. And their function is to kind of keep the, my, the flora that you normally find in the intestine at optimal level. Lastly, we have our enteroendocrine cells that are just like the other enteroendocrine cells you'd have seen before, except these here produce different hormones. They produce hormones like CCK that's produced by um, I cells, secretin by S cells, GIP, I can't remember which cells they uh, produce them, but you'll do that in physiology, and motilin by MO cells. These cells are produced at different sites along the gastrointestinal, along the small intestine. Um, a small amount of gastrin is said by a textbook to also be produced here, but gastrin secretion is mainly for the stomach, right? CCK, cholecystokinin, has action on the gallbladder and your pancreas. Secretin has activity on your pancreas. GIP, which is, um, I can't remember... Gastric inhibitory protein, yes, is involved in insulin secretion and motulin for um, activity, intestinal activity, has smooth muscle activity. You talk a lot about that in physiology on Monday. They don't have a very high rate of renewal, so when you lose them, you lose that hormonal activity for a long period of time. Lastly, we have our M-cells. These are only found in the areas where you have lymphoid nodules or lymphoid aggregates. They are called microfoil or M-cells, and they are nothing more than enterocytes that have been modified to help process antigens. So what they do is that they, they are found on the surface of the lymphoid aggregates, and they are able to take in antigens, absorb them, pass them through to lymphatic follicles that is below them. So they're involved in the immune process. So this is them here. You can't really um, see them well in the H&E stains. Right. So let's look at the main features of each region of the GI tract. So the duodenum is the first part after the stomach. main feature will be submucosal glands, Brunner's glands. So I know it's small intestine because I'm seeing villus projections right here so it's not stomach, and then right here in the submucosa, large amounts of these glands that are pale staining, they produce a bicarbonate-rich mucus. And that makes sense because you need to counteract the acidic chime from the stomach. Okay? So villus, submucosa, brunus glands. Please remember that. This is a slide taken from your lab jejunum main function absorption therefore i will need increase in my absorptive surface so what is special there highly ramified plicae circulares so the plicae are very long and very well developed that is why in your imaging studies the jejunum looks nice and feathery whereas the duodenum and the ileum don't look as feathery remember that from your anatomy so, it's because of the plicae secularis or semilunar folds that are very well developed in the jejunum. Ilium, right before the colon. Colon packed with bacteria, flora that is like crazy flora, right? Therefore, the function, the, the ileum will have very well developed lymphoid aggregates. So well developed that we call them a name. We call them pious patches. So, these are your pious patches here. And where do we find the lymphoid aggregates in the gastrointestinal tract? Is it the mucosa or the submucosa? Mucosa. Mucosa. Submucosa, so remember, is more dense connective tissue. The mucosa in the lamina propria is where you're going to find your nice lymphoid aggregates, your gut associated lymphoid tissue. So, here in the ileum, you have your pious patches that are so well developed that they extend from the mucosa down into the submucosa and even project into the lumen. So, these are pious patches. Whenever you see pious patches, think ileum. So we've done our three parts of our large intestine, now let's look at conditions that could possibly happen in the, large inte- in the small intestine. One of the main conditions that we're gonna look at for the small intestine, because of the fact that the function is absorption, will be your malabsorption. Malabsorption syndrome is pretty common, you're gonna talk a lot about them later on in your medical career. And they are due to problems with the GI tract that results in suboptimal absorption of either all. particular nutrients. The causes tends to be more mucosal damage, like in the case of celiac disease that most people would have heard about. That's your gluten sensitivity and uh, malabsorption. You have specific ones like B12 malabsorption and tropical sprue, which we're not going to talk about. Enzyme deficiencies like your lactose intolerance due to deficiency in your lactase enzyme that lots of people have. Um, infections, like cholera infections and so on, produces malabsorption, as well as structural things like short intestines from surgery and so on, causes less surface area for absorption, therefore you have a malabsorption, and large amounts of nutrients are wasted. And lastly, we have Crohn's disease, which we're also going to speak about. The signs and symptoms depends on, besides diarrhea, depends on which nutrients are lost. So vitamin D 12 deficiency, you have anemia, right? uh, massive malabsorption, you tend to have loss of weight, and your huge stools. So let's talk about the first one, the one that everybody's talking about now, because everybody's talking about gluten-free diets. I like gluten. I like bread. So celiac disease is gluten-sensitive enteropathy. And it's autoimmune, as most diseases these days have an autoimmune component, right? Autoimmune, but it's mediated by a particular protein that you find in the gluten, a glycoprotein that you find in gluten called gliadin, among other things. But gliadin is the one that has been identified to cause that immune response. So that immune response results in massive inflammation of the intestine whenever you consume gluten, Usually the distal duodenum and proximal jejunum, where most of the absorption takes place. So what happens is that you have massive loss of everything because you can't absorb nothing much. So the symptoms will be like bulky diarrhea, where everything is found in the diarrhea. Because you have that massive inflammation there, there tends to be necrosis and destruction of the normal cellular structure there, so you lose your villi. The villi gets flattened out. Normal villus here. Here. Villus looks a little bit funny, right? It's kind of flat and wide. You'll have lots of inflammatory cells going in between, so the lamina propria is now filled up with your lymphocytes. And to counteract the inflammation, your crypts of Lieberkuhn starts producing a lot of mucus, and the cells are constantly regenerating to try to replace the villus cells that are lost. So that is called hyperplasia of your intestinal glands or your intestinal crypts of Lieberkuhn. So the two signs of celiac disease, from a histological standpoint, will be atrophy of the villus, right here, and the crypts of Lieberkuhn will be continually hypertrophy or hyperplasia, hyperplasia hyper... having hyperplasia <laughs> to try to replace the lost um, the lost cells. So those are your main features. Remember, the symptoms will be. Um, your diarrhea, and so on. And there's a test for it so that you'll notice stay away from gluten where they test for your transglutaminase and endomycium and deaminated gliadin peptide. And once that is positive, it is positive for celiac disease. And then the management is just stay away from gluten. The unfortunate thing is that because there's chronic inflammation, it could lead to malignancy metaplasia and then eventually dysplasia, and you could have a, um, a malignant tumor occurring there. Crohn's disease is the formation of ulcers along certain parts of the gastrointestinal tract. The small intestine is very frequently affected. Also, in this case, is the terminal ileum, but the large intestine, specifically the proximal portion, could also be affected, as well as even the stomach and the esophagus. So it's another cause of ulcers. So if you do an endoscopy and you see an ulcer, it's not necessarily here in the stomach or the esophagus. It's not necessarily a gastric issue. It could also be Crohn's disease. So you have to look further down, probably do a colonoscopy and see if there's something else there. So it leads to malabsorption because there's, in, there's marked inflammation of the intestinal mucosa. And that inflammation can be seen from a growth standpoint as See these here? These are like swellings that look like cobblestone. That's edema of the mucosa. So it's cobblestones. And then not entire wall gets inflamed. Some parts get inflamed while others remain normal. So they're called skip lesions. But from a histological standpoint, what you see will be granulomas in the wall of the gastrointestinal tract. They may be in the mucosa, but they also may be in the submucosa. And if the inflammation is severe, they may also extend all the way down through the muscularis, causing damage to the wall, and maybe fistulas start forming. So this is one of your granuloma here. It looks like the giant cell granuloma that you saw last term, so that's something you have to go back to. Crohn occurs in episodes. So you have episodes of flare-ups, and then you have healing. And if the healing is not complete or if the um, the inflammation is so massive that the healing is by fibrosis, these fibrotic bands that are produced could lead to obstruction. So in Crohn's disease, you have these gross features of the cobblestone appearance and skip lesions. In histology, you have your granulomas and the complications will be obstruction because of fibrosis as well as the complications of the malabsorption syndrome. So that's our small intestine. The large intestine includes the colon, transverse, ascending, descending, and your sigmoid colon. You have your cecum with your appendix attached to it, and you have your anal canal. The main features of the large intestine correlate to the function. The function of the large intestine is to act as a reservoir for fecal material and to take that fecal material and bring it outside and expel it. A small amount of absorption takes place there, mainly water and some vitamins, as well as a small amount of vitamins. Vitamin K is produced at the level of the large intestine. So the the organ has been modified for its function. Firstly, because it's a reservoir, it needs to have like a large lumen and a large wall. So what happens is that the musculature of the muscularis externa has been modified to create a larger lumen. The external longitudinal um, layer of the muscularis externa has thinned out to form these bands called tenia coli. And because the external longitudinal layer has thinned out, it means that the inner circular layer and the rest of the wall can now bulge through to accommodate more fecal material. So those bulgings are called haustras, haustra coli. Another characteristic feature is the presence of these our mental fat appendages or epiploic appendages that tend to be at the intersections between the haustra. So tinea coli, haustra, epiploic appendages. So if we do a section through the wall of the large intestine, you see the tinea coli. And notice that the lumen doesn't have villi because you don't have a lot of absorption here. So that is another feature. The mucosa does not have villi. It will be the same mucosa that you saw in the small intestine, your simple columnar epithelium with lots of goblet cells. And in this case, you'll have more goblet cells than you do in the small intestine because you need to have lubrication for the fecal material. Not a lot of absorption taking place there. There will be no panet cells in the epithelium because you want that bacterial flora to be there. You don't want to kill it. So absence of panet cells and abundance of goblet cells are the main features of the mucosa. Look at your goblet cells filling up your crypts of Lieberkuhn. The submucosa is the same, and the next characteristic region will be a muscularis externa, where you have thinning out of your, that's your muscularis externa here, inner circular, outer longitudinal, and the outer longitudinal thins out, except in the portions where it concentrates to form your tinea coli. One tinea coli, two tinea coli, three tinea coli. There are three tinea coli, and all tinea coli converge at the appendix. Remember that? That's a nice thing to find in your lab when you go to the lab next week. And the bulging of the wall are called haustras, and they're located like between the tinea coli. So that's your haustrations here. That's another haustra. That's another haustra, and those are your three tinea coli. You'll find the same thing in myenteric plexus or Orbach's plexus. And the large intestine is the last place where the myenteric my plexus forms from neural crest cells that migrate to the large intestine. So the more distal the part of the large intestine is, it means that that's the, last, that's the, later, the, the later stream of neural crest cells. And you know neural crest cells, sometimes they don't go where they're supposed to go, right? Last but not least of the large intestine structures for this part will be the appendix. Appendix for now is a rudimentary organ, doesn't do nothing much, but it's thought to have a small amount of immune function, and that is um, more or less proven by the fact that in the lamina propria, you have lots of lymphatic nodules, almost as much as you see in the pious patches of the small intestine. And these lymphatic nodules sometimes stick into the lumen, And the lumen tends to be stellate because of those big aggregates of lymphatic tissue. Another important feature is that sometimes in the lumen you see fecal material. And another characteristic feature is that, unlike the other parts of the large intestine, there are no tinea coli. The appendix has a complete muscularis externa layer. So when you do your table, appendix will be lymphoid aggregates in the mucosa, complete muscularis externally, and those are the characteristic features. So the appendix, is it intra- or retroperitoneal? It has its own mesentery, so therefore it's intraperitoneal. It has your mesoappendix. So let's look at our same question and see if we can get a correct answer now. Where is the thingy? Yep, we got it, right? Pious patches are characteristic of the ileum. Rugae would be submucosal glands, esophagus, and duodenum. Circular from plica circularis, complex. Jejunum for absorption. Antinia coli is any part of the large intestine except appendix, and you'll see another one later on. So diseases of the large intestine, classically or more commonly, you'll find your, um, your colonic polyps or adenomatous polyps. There are three types. So these are adenomas, so they're diseases of the glandular tissue, right? So these, there are three types. You have your tubular type, your villus type, and your tubulovillous type. The villus type look like villi, so like here, the villus type will be villus in nature. So you'll have islands of abnormal villus with dysplastic enterocytes. Your tubular types will have more glandular tissue, so you have lots of glands. So this is a tubular type here. Lots of crypts of Lieberkuhn, and it's sticking out into the lumen. And your tubular villus will be in between, between tubular and villus. So the more common type that you will be seeing will be the tubular type here, you have your villas, and you have lots of intestinal glands. The more dangerous type will be the villus type, highly metastatic. The last part of the large intestine will be your rectum, which continues into your anal canal, and it is the distal dilated portion of the alimentary canal. So this is taken from one of the histology textbooks, um, textbooks. And one of the features from growth of the rectum is that you have these longitudinal folds, your columns of Morgagni, or your rectal folds, go down, go downwards. Um, the lining of the rectum is very similar to the rest of the large intestine. The mucosa is the same, no villus, crypts of Lieberkuhn are abundant, lots of goblet cells, much more than anywhere else, because at that point the stool is pretty hard or pretty you know, firm, right? The, muscul- the submucosa is the same thing, large vascular plexuses, specifically venous plexuses. And in the case of the rectum and anal canal, the venous plexuses there are from your hemorrhoidal plexus, your superior inferior rectal, superior middle and inferior rectal veins, and so on. Your muscularis externa is a little bit different, though. Your tinea coli ends, and you have a continuous layer of outer longitudinal um, lining. So you have an inner circular and outer, t- outer longitudinal. So you have two locations in the large intestine where you have a complete outer um, muscularis externa, your appendix and your rectum. And in the rectum, because it's retroperitoneal, you have an adventitia. So the rectum continues into the anal canal. Before that, there's a recto-anal junction. At that junction, important changes occur. So let's go through it. In the mucosa, you have a transition from your glandular intestinal epithelium to a stratified squamous epithelium of the anal canal. Anal canal is ectoderm. It's like skin or mucous membrane for friction. Therefore, it's a stratified squamous epithelium here, initially non-keratinized, and then afterwards it becomes keratinized as you go out of the anal canal. And this here represents a transitional zone between your rectal portion and your anal portion. It's called the anal transition zone, and at that point you tend to have an epithelium as kind of in between. In some books it's described as stratified columnar, So that's one change that occurs. Another change that occurs is in the muscularis layer. So at the zone between, at the the junction, you have your internal inner sphincter being formed by thickening of your inner circular layer. And that is where the inner circular layer stops. From then onwards, the muscular activity is taken up by muscles from the pelvis, fibers from your levator, ani and so on, that form your external anal sphincter, which is voluntary. So this is your transition zone right here, like this. You have your muscularis externa stopping and being taken up by your external anal sphincter. So from your transition zone, we go into the anal canal. And the anal canal, um, at the upper part of the anal canal where the transition zone is, has the three zones we just spoke about. You have a colorectal zone that is still the lower part of the rectum. You have your transition zone at the junction. And then you have your squamous zone, which is in the true anal canal right here. So this is your transition zone right here. Upper one-third, middle one-third, lower one-third of the anal canal. When you look at it, like in gross pictures, or when you're examining your patients, you'll actually see an almost abrupt change in the mucosa from pale of the skin to nice and red of glandular tissue. So what could go wrong in the colon? Remember we spoke about the muscularis externa and how it's the most important structure for 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 the large intestine? Because the function is to accommodate volume of stool and to push it along. Well, congenital megacolon, or Hirschsprung's disease, is a problem with the muscularis externa. You have a loss of your myenteric plexus because the neural crest cells don't migrate there. That happens all the time. Alcohol causes problems. All sorts of stuff happens with these neural crest cells, and they don't go where they're supposed to go to. So what happens is that you have no myenteric plexus. The parts that are most likely affected will be the most distal parts. So. Hirschsprung's disease tend to affect your rectum and your sigmoid. Makes sense, right? So it leads to loss of peristalsis at that particular segment, and the loss of peristalsis means that stool accumulates there and stretches out the walls, producing a mega colon. It's common to see it in children. See here, a toddler and the distended abdomen because of your congen... of your congenital megacolon or mega sigmoid in this case another problem very common problem especially us we sit down a lot are hemorrhoids so hemorrhoids are nothing more than varicosities of the anal canal the anal canal is drained by two systems of veins it's a site of portal caval anastomosis between branches tributaries to the portal vein your rectal veins, your superior and middle rectal veins, and tributaries to the caval system. The tributaries to the portal veins are found above the transition zone, right here, and they form what is called your internal rectal plexus, or internal hemorrhoidal plexus, and your tributaries to the caval system, to the iliac system, is below, closer to the anal skin, and that is your external hemorrhoidal plexus. Now, it's very common like in people with liver disease and so on to have dilatation of your internal hemorrhoidal plexus. So increase in, in um, you have portal hypertension because of cirrhosis of the liver and so on. That causes increase in pressure in the rectal veins, in the mesenteric veins and rectal veins. Dilation of your internal hemorrhoidal plexus leads to internal hemorrhoids. These are above the pectinate line that you learned about in anatomy. And because they're surrounded by um, mucosal lining from the gastrointestinal tract, and not skin, they'll most likely be painless unless they get inflamed, or unless they're really dilatated or thrombosed. So internal hemorrhoidal veins, internal hemorrhoids. External hemorrhoids are below the pectinate line, and they're formed from dilatation of the veins that are tributaries to the caval system, and they are outside under the skin, so when they get dilated, they become very painful. Complications will be in secondary infections, um, bleeding, that's the most common complication. So here you have anorectal vein, that's at your squamous region right here. So most likely that's one of the external hemorrhoids, probably very painful. You would have done that in anatomy already, so this is kind of like review for you. And lastly, we talk about surgical adhesions. This is a disease or a condition that's because of serosal injury. Remember, the serosa surrounds all the organs that have to move around. So what happens if you cut into a serosal organ, like if you're doing surgery? It exposes the collagen fibers in the connective tissue under that mesothelium. And once collagen becomes exposed and contacts with something else, it forms these bands. Now, the first couple of weeks, these bands are very soft, and you can just take your hand and move them aside like that, and that's fine. But after a while, more collagen fibers are recruited, and these bands become thick and fibrotic. So what do you think a complication would be? Thick fibrotic bands form between two organs, or between the organ and the abdominal wall that you cut into. You could have entrapment of an organ, obstruction of a particular organ. These are the complications of surgical adhesions. And they're very commonplace, especially when you do open abdominal surgery. Signs and symptoms would be signs of obstruction, as well as pain from entrapment of a particular organ. So, do not have any more questions for you? This is our last slide. Uh, my office hours will be up um, by the end of the day. Questions, queries, doubts, put it in a discussion forum, or come to me in my office hours. Please do the table. The table helps a lot. I know as a medical student, it's a lot of material. Do your table in order to kind of put the material together. And remember, after you learn the normal for everything, the most important thing is the characteristic feature of each individual organ. So when I say ilium, you say pass patches. When I say jejunum, you say plicae circulis. When I say duodenum, you say Brunner's gland. When I say parietal cells, you say fundic stomach, uh, like that. Have a good day, guys.